0: Matthew 19, verse 1 through 12. It's in Pew Bibles, page 824. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? he answered have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh so they are no longer two but one flesh what therefore god has joined together let not man separate they said to him why then did moses come to one come one, command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away He said to them, "'Because of your hardness of heart, "'Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, "'but from the beginning it was not so. "'And I say to you, "'whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality "'and marries another commits adultery.' "'The disciples said to him, "'If such is the case of a man with his wife, "'it is better not to marry.' "'But he said to them, "'Not everyone can receive this saying, "'but only those to whom it is given.' For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. This is God's word.
1: Thank you, Carl. Go ahead and keep your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 19. This morning I want to tell you the story of Robert and Vanessa. Ever since she was a little girl, Vanessa dreamed of her wedding day. Whenever her parents would dress her in her white dress for church, she would spend the afternoon kind of playing wedding, you know, with, a little, with her mom's dried uh, bouquet and her teddy bear for a groom. All she ever really wanted in life was to be a wife and a mother When that didn't happen by age 20, or 25, or 30, she thought that she was cursed. She'd done something wrong. She'd offended God somehow, that he would withhold this blessing from her. And others kind of wondered the same thing. She dreaded going home at the holidays and being bombarded with questions of, when are you finally going to find a man and settle down? Isn't there some nice young man out there waiting for you? Her greatest fear is that she would live out her days alone and unfulfilled. And then she met Robert. Robert was never quite sure if he wanted to get married. He kind of liked the idea of companionship, and he liked the idea of sex, but he wasn't really sure if he wanted to be tied down in that sort of commitment. He spent his 20s moving around the country, working from different jobs, making a lot of money, working his way up the corporate ladder. He had girlfriends when he had time for them, but his, his career always was priority. When he was 32 and realized you know, he'd done pretty well for himself and, and it was about time to kind of settle down, maybe get a home, he started thinking, you know, maybe I should get a wife too. That's when he met Vanessa. When their engagement day came, Vanessa stared at her ring more than her fiancé. So much that she didn't notice that Robert stared at the waitress more than at her. Vanessa cleaned her engagement ring every day and loved hearing all of the compliments about how beautiful it was. After they were married, Robert often concealed his ring when there were attractive women around kind of hiding it behind his hand or in his pocket. Now, Robert and Vanessa are fictional characters, but their stories are very real. And they reflect two of the prevailing attitudes of our culture when it comes to marriage and singleness. The temptation to idolize marriage and trivialize singleness, like Vanessa, whose identity and security were tied up in her marital status. Or the temptation, like Robert, to trivialize marriage and idolize singleness, treating marriage like a disposable means to the end of self-fulfillment. Western culture tends to fall into the latter of those two temptations. As Tim Keller explains, In the West, we make an idol out of your individual rights and your individual happiness. Yeah, marriage is fine as long as it meets your individual needs. Don't cut yourself off from too many options. Never get married before you've got your career going. Why? Marriage has to fulfill you. It has to be an asset in your portfolio, but what really matters is you. Self-realization is paramount, and marriage is just a means to an end. The Western idea is that marriage is basically a disposable asset, something you take up if you want, if it really helps you. In traditional cultures, including church culture in general, we tend to fall into the other temptation. So Keller continues, In non-Western traditional culture, those cultures make an idol of the family. You are nothing until you're married. You're a freak until you're married. You don't have a legacy. Your life hasn't really begun until you're married. But the kingdom of God has a much different view on marriage and singleness. A view that neither idolizes nor trivializes either of them, but honors both marriage and singleness as equally valuable gifts from God. Because under God's reign, our identity, our security, our fulfillment, do not come from our union with a spouse or our lack thereof, but our union with Jesus. He is the king who honors both marriage and singleness. So let's pray and look at what he says here in Matthew 19. Lord, we thank you that you've given us your word. And it's your word that we want to hear this morning. It's not our opinions or our ideas. That's not what we want to hear, Lord. It's you. And so I pray that your spirit would open our hearts and our ears and our eyes to see and hear you from your word. And that your spirit would be at work to give us eyes to see things the way you see them. And that in doing so, our hearts would be free. Our hearts would be free to enjoy life in your kingdom, whatever it looks like. Knowing that we already have all we need in Jesus. So be at work in our hearts, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 19 starts a new section in Matthew's Gospel, and Jesus is on the move once again. He's been up in kind of the northern region, uh, and now he's heading closer and closer to Jerusalem as the book begins to kind of uh, build steam towards the climax uh, in a few chapters. Uh, Verse 1 reads, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, what he just got done saying in chapter 18 about uh, the values of the kingdom uh, being somewhat different than the world and and such. When Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. So we've seen this throughout the book, where Jesus goes, people follow. And where people follow, Jesus heals. Jesus proclaims the gospel. He's continuing to have compassion on them as they are like sheep, sheep without a shepherd. But the crowds are not the only ones that have been following Jesus around. The Jewish religious leaders, so groups like the Pharisees that we've met several times in this book who stood in opposition to Jesus and his kingdom, they also show up. Uh, And again here, they don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Uh, And they certainly don't like the fact that Jesus has been critical of their failed leadership. And so... Their goal is to publicly discredit him. So you can kind of picture like a a tabloid expose. They're showing up to try and create a trap and catch Jesus in his words to make him look bad in front of the public. That's their goal. So they specifically want to catch him publicly disagreeing with the law of Moses. Moses. So the law of Moses was the standard, the authoritative foundation of Israel's faith and practice. It's what God gave to Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai. And and so if they can catch Jesus appearing to disagree with that law, they can make him look pretty bad. Because people have been following him around like some sort of celebrity. And so they devise a test, and the subject of that test is divorce. They've most likely heard Jesus teach on this subject before. He's already addressed it back in chapter 5 in his Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus' opposition to divorce sounds to them like he's saying something different than Moses. And so here's their opportunity. If we can just get this on film, basically, we can kind of show people that he's not all that they think he is. And so in verse 3, they set the trap with their question. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking... Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, that sounds like a relatively straightforward question for us, but it's actually a pretty loaded question uh, that reflects an ongoing debate in uh, Jesus' day among the ancient rabbis uh, and how one is to interpret and apply Deuteronomy 24, which is where Moses talks about giving a certificate of divorce. Some of the rabbis thought that the only proper ground for divorce was sexual sin. Others thought that it could be something as trivial as burning dinner. And so these are the debates that, you know, the rabbis were having. And so for some in Jesus' day, there was a sense that marriage was rather trivial. It was disposable. It was a means to the end of self-fulfillment. And if it no longer fulfilled you personally, then you had permission to get rid of it. Through divorce. It's kind of interesting. As, as unique as you know, the modern Western culture of self-fulfillment seems. It, there's not much modern or Western about it. The idea of self-triumphing triump, and trumping everything else. Is, is a very old problem. As old as the garden. Now Jesus has already weighed in on this question. As I mentioned a minute ago back in Matthew 5. But he, he addresses it here as well. But like he addressed it in Matthew 5, Jesus doesn't deal with the surface. He goes underneath the surface to deal with the heart. What's underneath this question ultimately? And he does that by bringing them back to the original purpose and design of marriage, taking them back to Genesis 1 through 2. So look at verses 4 through 5 with me. First, notice how Jesus takes them to the scriptures for his answer. That's the source of his view. He says, have you not read? So he's going back to the scriptures, to the Old Testament. That's his foundation for his theology of marriage. More specifically, he appeals to God's design for marriage at creation. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus is quoting Genesis 2 here. Jesus is reminding the Pharisees that marriage is not whatever we want it to be. There is a blueprint. There is a pattern. There is a design shaped by God himself and revealed in his holy word of what marriage is supposed to be. And according to that design. Jesus says several things about it. First it's between a man and a woman. Now that seems obvious in the passage. But there's a lot of confusion about that today. And I want to be very sensitive here. Because the reality is. There are most likely people among us. Asking honest questions about that. What do I think about that? What do I think of my own heart? And we need to be free to wrestle honestly with those questions in church without fear of judgment or being run out right away. If we're not free to ask honest questions, we've got problems. And so we need to ask those and we need to create a safe space among God's people to wrestle honestly. But we also need to wrestle in accordance with Scripture. So what is God's Word saying about these things? That needs to be the goal in our wrestling with these kinds of questions. And sometimes you'll hear people say things like, Jesus never actually said anything about same-sex attraction or marriage. That's not entirely true. Uh, First, it's a rather naive perspective, which kind of takes Jesus' recorded words and gives them more moral weight than the rest of what the Bible says, which maybe makes sense for about three seconds. And then when you think, who's the author of all of Scripture, the Holy Spirit? you can't pit Jesus' voice against the Spirit's voice. And so if the rest of Scripture says something, Jesus agrees with that. So so that's one aspect. But the other way in that it's not entirely true is that Jesus anchors his theology of marriage here in God's creational design. And he specifically describes it as between male and female. Now, the church is not always handled this issue with sensitivity and that's an understatement. And so we need to repent of some of our judgmental attitudes and and apply the grace of Jesus. We need to take sin seriously and we need to apply serious grace. You can't minimize either of those. But just because we've been insensitive at times doesn't mean we can refashion marriage to be whatever we want it to be. Whether The question is homosexuality or whether the question is divorce or adultery. Jesus' word is what gives us the standard. And as his followers, we need to follow that standard by his grace with gentleness and compassion. So that's the first thing we can say about marriage. The second is that marriage is a covenant relationship. It's a covenant relationship between a man and a woman. And what do we mean by that, by a covenant relationship? Well, the word that's used here in verse five for hold fast, or some of your translations might say clean, man will leave his father and mother and clean or cleave to his wife, hold fast to his wife. Uh, That word is a word often used to describe the kind of covenant loyalty and affection that Israel was to have with God. It's covenant language. Uh, We see it in Deuteronomy 13, four, which describes Israel's Covenant obligations to God, and then the basis of that in their loyal affection. You shall walk with uh, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. There was this loyal affection, this loyal commitment of covenant relationship between Israel and their God. That's what God called Israel to. But that's actually simply a reflection and a reciprocation of God's covenant loyalty and love for his people. He's the one who is the standard for that kind of covenant loyalty and love. In fact, that's what marriage is ultimately about. A picture of God's covenant love to his people and how he treats his people. When uh, the Apostle Paul talks about instructions for marriage in the book of Ephesians, whenever he gives an instruction for what husbands or wives are supposed to do, he anchors that in how it reflects and pictures our relationship with God. So for instance, he says in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. That's the standard. That's the picture on display. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. That's the picture on display. And then he comes right out and says it in Ephesians 5.32. This mystery of marriage is profound, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. Marriage is great, but it's a picture. It's a picture that's more about God and his love for us than it is about us and our fulfillment. The love that we express to one another in marriage, the sacrificial love, the covenant loyalty it's designed to be a living sermon to each other and to the world of what christ is like and how he loves us so my wife should learn what jesus is like by the way i love her it's a pretty big standard that i pretty much blow it at daily but that's the picture that's the goal and vice versa marriage is not excuse me about our own self-fulfillment it is about, it's a reflection of Christ's self-giving love and loyalty. It's a foretaste of the ultimate love and fulfillment and joy that we have in our eternal union with God through Jesus. And so under God's reign, our identity, who we are, our significance, our value, our satisfaction and fulfillment, it does not come from our union with a spouse. It comes from our union with Jesus. And marriage is meant to help us understand that. It points us forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. At the end of time, the, what, the, the feast and the celebration you see on display at the end of Revelation, when, as John Piper puts it so eloquently, the shadow will give way to reality. The partial will pass into the perfect. The foretaste will lead to the banquet. The troubled path will end in paradise. A hundred candlelit evenings will come to their consummation in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this momentary marriage will be swallowed up by life. Christ will be all in all. And the purpose of marriage will be complete. That's what marriage is about. And if that's what marriage is about, this covenant, this reflection and foretaste of our union with God, then that means not only is it a covenant relationship, but it's a permanent and exclusive covenant relationship. Because it's meant to teach us about how God's covenant with us works. It's for all of life till death do we part because God will never leave nor forsake his people, we should never leave nor forsake our spouse. You mess up the picture. Just as we're united with God by the Holy Spirit, so husband and wife are united in flesh and spirit, the two are made into one by God. That's why Paul says to husbands, he who loves his wife loves himself. Because it's You're one. If you're loving your wife, you're literally loving yourself because God has made the two into one. And that's the point that Jesus emphasizes in his response to the Pharisees and their question about divorce. It's the oneness that God has created through the marriage covenant. Jesus says in verse 6, back in Matthew 19 now. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God As joined together, let not man separate. So, when you buy into the culture of divorce and turn marriage into that means of self fulfillment that's kind of disposable at will, you ruin the picture of what marriage is supposed to be. This picture of God's covenant loyalty and sacrificial love to his people. You misrepresent God's character. You make him look like he doesn't keep his promises. And you actually oppose God's work. You are tearing apart what God joined together. You're opposing God's work. And so Jesus, rather than directly answering the question and getting into the tabloid debate, points them back to God's original design. Marriage is a permanent, exclusive, covenant relationship between a man and a woman who share all of life together for all of life. Probably not the answer the Pharisees were looking for. But they try and spring the trap anyway in verse 7. They said to him, Well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Are you disagreeing with Moses here, Jesus? Are you suggesting the law should be overturned and and so on? Are we getting this? Well, Jesus replies in verses 8 through 9. He says to him, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. From the beginning, the creational design, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Marriage is not a trivial relationship. It's not something to be used for our own fulfillment and then discarded if we feel like it's no longer meeting our needs. It is a special and holy covenant because God's covenant with us is special and holy. And Jesus says in verse 9 that if you divorce your wife or your husband without proper grounds, which we'll talk about in a moment, and she remarries someone else, you make her an adulterer because you should still be married and if you in a similar way marry uh, excuse me yeah if you in a similar way marry a wrongfully divorced person you commit adultery because that person should, should still be married to their spouse marriage is, is not trivial it's holy and divorce was not part of the design and yet there is a concession for it And that's what Jesus talks about. According to Jesus, Moses gave the instructions about divorce, not as a requirement or as a command, but as a concession because of the hardness of their hearts. And it was specifically given in order to protect the divorced wife. If you think about life in the ancient world, an adult woman's means of support was pretty much contingent on being married in order to be provided for. And so if her husband would, for some reason, decide to divorce her, Moses wanted a document stating that that divorce had happened so that she would be free to remarry somebody else and be provided for without that person being accused of adultery, of marrying someone else's wife. Who's going to marry someone if you can't prove that that first marriage was dissolved? The, the pun, punishment of adultery under Israel's covenant was death. And so if you're going to protect the vulnerable woman who has been divorced by her husband and enable her to remarry, you need some sort of documentation so that people will be willing to do that. That's the purpose of that document in Deuteronomy 24. And Jesus retains that concession because we still live in a fallen world. We're still waiting for the final wedding supper of the Lamb. And so, therefore, there are sadly times when a vulnerable spouse needs that kind of protection. And so, divorce, Jesus says, is permissible in cases of sexual immorality. So, where one party has broken the covenant through sexual activity with someone else, which may or may not involve intercourse. It's not exclusively reduced to that. Divorce is not required in that case. Forgiveness and reconciliation are always the desire of our hearts. But it is not sinful in those circumstances when that person, when the one party's broken the covenant through sexual sin. The divorce is not sinful, and in certain cases it may actually be wise and necessary. The wife who's abandoned by her husband, who's now started a new family with a new spouse, divorce is the wise and necessary route in that terrible, tragic circumstance. You know, the the husband whose wife moves from secret lover to secret lover, you know there are times where sadly that concession comes into play, and if it can be said that divorce is permissible, I believe that it can be said that remarriage is permissible as well, since the entire purpose of the divorce clause in Deuteronomy 24 was to free the wife for remarriage. So if it's a legitimate divorce, then I think that it's legitimate. For that person to remarry, pastors will disagree on this, books will disagree on this. That's where I'm at. Jesus honors the institution of marriage, which is why he's so adamantly against divorce. It's a holy and special thing, it's designed for loyalty, love, intimacy, and companionship that reflects our covenant relationship with God. And so, if you're married, stay married. If you're married, don't be tricked into thinking that marriage is all about you. Or thinking that, you know, uh, that that if I'm no longer getting my needs met, then I can just kind of cut bait. Marriage is a holy covenant. Think about God's covenant commitment to you. And by His grace, seek to reflect that faithfulness and that, that covenant love to each other. And if you need help, Get help. There's no shame. There's no shame in that. That's an act of love to say, you know what? This isn't working right. We need to call in some reinforcements. We need people to come alongside us and help. That's okay. Do that. Don't just let divorce be the the first response as it has become in our culture. If you're divorced because your spouse has committed sexual immorality, Or else denies the faith and has abandoned you, which is the other situation Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7. Then I want you to know our hearts break for you. That it was not a sinful thing and it was not your fault to be abandoned and treated in that way. We do not judge you, we do not look down on you, we love you and we want to come alongside you. And be a family for you and help you find healing and joy in Jesus. That's what we want. If you're divorced and you shouldn't be, perhaps even remarried now, but your divorce was not caused by what Jesus is talking about, the sexual immorality, or by what Paul later talks about in 1 Corinthians, being abandoned by a non-believer, I want you to know that we love you too. We do, and we're glad that you're here. We're glad that you're part of this family. It is no small thing to tear asunder what God has joined. But it is not the unpardonable sin either. And there is grace and there is healing with repentance as well. And so, if that's your situation, then repentance means acknowledging your sin for what it is, Seeking forgiveness from those you've offended and remaining as you are. Remaining as you are. That's what Paul encourages in 1 Corinthians 7 again. And so, if you're remarried, stay married. Don't do the whole sinful divorce thing a second time. Seek forgiveness and be a faithful spouse and walk in Jesus' grace. If you're not remarried... Remain as you are, unless you can remarry your original spouse. That's what Paul instructs us. In any case, the answer is the gospel of God's grace in Jesus. That's where we find our significance. That's where we find our fulfillment. And his grace is always enough if we will turn to him. Jesus honors the institution of marriage. And so should we. Yet as the story continues in Matthew 19, we also see, somewhat surprisingly, how Jesus also honors singleness. Look at verses 10 through 12 with me. The disciples, as they hear Jesus answering the Pharisees, are frankly a little bit taken aback by Jesus' firm insistence on the permanence of marriage, which suggests perhaps how pervasive this uh, trivial view, this self-centered view of marriage had become. So in verse 10, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. You know, wow, they're kind of shocked. But what's interesting is that instead of of Jesus saying, come on, guys, it's worth it, you can do it, he actually takes their astonishment as an opportunity to affirm the goodness of singleness as well. So verse 11, but he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let one who, let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Now what does Jesus mean by eunuch? Well, without getting into the scientific explanation, we will suffice it to say that a eunuch is an unmarried person. Um, your parents can Google it later or something. Uh, now, whether they could not marry because of some abnormality or disability from birth or whether they couldn't marry because they had been forcibly disabled by someone else and enslaved, which was not uncommon in the ancient world. If you read the book of Esther, most of the servants in Persia were described as eunuchs. Um, it was a way of dominating them and putting them into service. Uh, regardless of what caused it, it was not a highly regarded part of society it was pretty disparaged. And with it, the whole stigma of singleness was pretty disparaged in the ancient world. As one scholar comments, for ancient Jews, being a eunuch would have been a detestable position. And yet, Jesus holds this in high esteem. He even uses the category metaphorically to refer to, to those who willingly refrain from marriage for the sake of the kingdom of God. It's not for everyone, he says, but it is good and it is for those to whom God calls. Now, in a conservative church like Westgate, we often have the opposite temptation of the world when it comes to marriage and singleness. Instead of trivializing marriage and idolizing singleness we tend to idolize marriage and trivialize singleness. We rightly honor marriage and family, but we sometimes wrongly do it at the expense of singles. Uh, we can give the impression that they're second-class citizens, whether it's single parents or, or, or people who've never married. <clears throat> I remember, uh, and I've told this story before, you'll have to forgive me, but I remember sitting at a friend's wedding one time, a few years back, listening to the pastor exult in the glories of marriage by talking about how miserable it was to be single. You know, how one is the loneliest number that you'll ever see, and how if you want to punish somebody in prison, you put them in solitary confinement. You know, and, and you know, bless his heart, he's trying to talk about the goodness of marriage, but he's doing it at the expense of something that God says is very good. And And I remember watching... My single friend in the row in front of me, and wondering what that was doing to her heart in that moment—to be told how there is no life for her. You know, even when we try and and talk about the goodness of singleness, it often is no, nothing more than lip service. And think of a a Cadman's Call song. Cadman's Call Calls a band, and in one of their many laments about absent love life. Um, about half of their songs are about that, Uh, one of the lines goes, maybe I have the gift that everyone speaks so highly of. Funny how nobody wants it. Let the reader understand. When we idolize marriage and we trivialize singleness, whether we're doing that as a single person, longing for marriage, or as a married person, disparaging singleness, not only are we putting our hope in something that can never fulfill us, not only are we belittling something that Jesus honors, we're also feeding the idea that to live a happy, full human life, you have to experience love and companionship in that way. You know, Idolizing marriage treats it not as a gift, but as a basic human right. And who are we to deny others that basic human right? You can see where that logic goes. But let us not forget that Jesus himself, the perfect human being, the ultimate expression of perfect humanity, didn't feel the need to get married in order to exhibit perfect humanity or to live a full human experience. He was the perfection. But he didn't have to express that in that way. Which means, by the way, that he also lived In the wondrous hope and joy at the prospect of that future wedding supper of the Lamb. That was enough for him, too. It's important to think about. So Jesus honors both singleness and marriage. Our identity, our security, our satisfaction and fulfillment, they don't come from our union with a spouse or our lack thereof, but our union with Jesus. From trusting in Christ and being found in him and having a new family in him. And though there are no doubt um, definitely significant challenges that come with singleness, as there are with marriage, uh, there are also unique benefits. And Jesus talks about those. Uh, Specifically, one's participation in advancing the kingdom. Uh, Paul talks about the same thing in 1 Corinthians 7. He makes a similar point, noting how those who are married and have families are simply less available emotionally and in terms of time and effort than single people for what Paul calls an undivided devotion to the Lord, an engagement in advancing the gospel. Uh, For that reason, Paul chose to remain single and encouraged others to do it if they could. Uh, You think of modern-day examples like John Stott. You know, you wonder how how is it that we're able to have so many books on our shelf by a guy named John Stott? Well, that was one of the reasons. He chose early on not to be married so that he was more available for that ministry. I remember a couple of friends of mine uh, at our church back in Wheaton who, after graduating college, went to the missions pastor at the church and said, we want to go somewhere dangerous. We're young. We're not married. We can do that. And they did. They went to minister among Muslim minorities in western China. It's hard to take a family to some of those places, but they could do it, and they did. But the principle applies right here at home, too. The relational capacity, the availability, the undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, of course, some will wonder and are asking the question, so is the gift revocable? Is this a permanent thing? How do I know if I have? The gift of singleness. There's a very easy answer to that. Are you single right now? Then you have the gift. Today. Are you married? That's your gift and your calling. Today. Those things could change. You could be single for a season. You could get married later. Tragically, marriages sometimes come to an end. Through death or or divorce or whatever. Your calling may change as well. And so what has God assigned you today? That's your calling. Embracing your singleness today doesn't mean that you can't or you shouldn't long for marriage. It just means you shouldn't idolize it. Don't waste your singleness. Don't waste your marriage. As an author and editor, Bethany Jenkins, uh, wrote in a recent post on the question of contentment in singleness, She writes, while I may never be able to be content with my singleness, I can know God's joy in my singleness. I can give thanks for it. I can use it to bless others. But I'm not going to waste time feeling guilty that I still desire marriage. In fact, I'm going to view this unfulfilled desire as a parable of the holy discontentment we should feel until Christ returns. So think about that the desire and longing we have as single people for marriage, that is a picture, a parable of the longing and desire all of us should have for the return of Christ. That's the parable there. Your identity and security and fulfillment is not found in your union with a spouse or your lack of union with a spouse. It's found in your union with Christ. And when he returns that union will be gloriously complete. It'll be consummated. We will be eternally satisfied. God will be eternally glorified and the purpose of marriage will finally be complete. In the meantime, Tim Keller offers this sage advice. The ultimate family is in the future. The ultimate wedding is in the future. The wedding supper of the Lamb. All of the deepest desires you have for love, for closure, for acceptance, for unity, for security, all of that will be satisfied on that day. And no earthly family and no earthly marriage can do anything more than be penultimate. It could be a foretaste. It can be a sign. It can be great. But if you don't have a family, don't get too upset. And if you do have a family, don't be too elated. And don't, too much, don't put too much of your hopes in it. Once you see the idea that everything you do here, including being single and being married, has to be consistently done in light of the future and not acting as if this life is all there is, it changes everything. But it also means that it equalizes singleness and married life. And there's no two ways around that. When Paul says, are you unmarried? He doesn't say, well, that's all right, but the married state's the real way in which you should live the Christian life. No. Or do you want to say, oh, you're married, don't do that. No. If you're marrying, you're not sinning. If you're not marrying, you're not in trouble. You're not a freak. Your identity, your security, your fulfillment don't come from that marriage status. They come from your status with Jesus, your union with him. And so for a congregation like us, my desire is that we would work hard to live together as a family. As a family under the reign of Christ, honoring both singleness and marriage. Just like our Lord. So avoiding the idolizing of marriage or the idolizing of singleness and finding our identity and fulfillment in Christ. Don't forget... That your biological family is temporary. Your heavenly family is eternal. So Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1 Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The gospel makes us family. Uniting us with each other and uniting us with Christ who is our betrothed. May we find all our joy and gladness in him. And honor both marriage and singleness as a family. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that your spirit would unite your word with our hearts. Lord, where your word is hard on us right now, I pray for comfort. I pray for conviction. I pray for comfort. I pray that you would draw us to the cross. Where our ears are still shut to what you have to say, I pray that they'd be open. But Lord, most of all, I pray... That every heart here would find our fulfillment, our satisfaction, our security, our desire in Jesus. He is already all we need. Lord, may that be true and may that free us to be the kinds of husbands and wives you've called us to be. Not leeching our identity out of our spouse, but laying our lives down in love. May we be in the freedom of identity in you, the kind of single people you've called us to be, lovingly laying our lives down for others and and enjoying the family we have in Christ. Lord, the heart of all of this is the gospel. May that be our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.